Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds build their nests and the stork whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the Shephanim. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you. You give them their food in due season. You give to them. They gather it up. You open your hands. They are satisfied with good. You hide your face. They are dismayed. You take away their spirit. They expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit. They are created and you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to Him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are the mighty and awesome and sovereign Creator and Sustainer and Governor and Lord over heaven and earth. We ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would now open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your word and to take to heart that which your Spirit is speaking to us in this portion of your inerrant scriptures. We thank you, O God, for your word. It is indeed a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and a guide to our way. And we ask, Lord, that uh, the spirit of praise that that saturates this psalm would would become part uh, of our spirit as well, that we might indeed... uh, uh, draw forth from this psalm great riches 
uh, to fuel our praises and our prayers. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. The sermon title this evening is God's Wisdom and Glory Displayed in Creation. And there's four key words to be listening for this evening. The words greatness, goodness, wisdom, and majesty. Especially the children, if you would find it helpful to keep track of the number of times I say those words. If that helps you follow along in the sermon, I'd encourage you to count the number of times I say those words. Greatness, goodness, wisdom, and majesty. Well, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Psalm 104 is a marvelous psalm. It is a marvelous psalm of praise to the Creator, a psalm of praise that highlights God's glory, God's wisdom, and God's majesty, especially as that glory, wisdom, and majesty are displayed in His mighty works of creation and His mighty works of divine providence. Now, this psalm appears to be a poetic reflection upon the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. And if you carefully compare this psalm with Genesis 1, you will detect many poetic echoes of Genesis chapter 1, of the Genesis creation account. And just to give you some examples, the creation of light and the heavens in verses 2 and 3 of our psalm echoes the first and second days of creation as recorded in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. The separation of the land from the sea, recorded in verses 5 through 9 of this psalm, echoes the third day of creation as recorded in Genesis 1, 9 and 10. God's provision for the vegetation and land creatures, as spoken of in verses 10 through 18 of this psalm, echoes the third and the sixth days of creation, as recorded in Genesis 1, 11 to 13, as well as Genesis 1, 24 to 31. The order of day and night as ruled by the sun and the moon, which we read about in verses 19 through 23 of our psalm, echoes the fourth day of creation as recorded in Genesis 1:14 through 19. And God's works in the realm of the sea, which we read about in verses 25 and 26 of this psalm, are an echo of the fifth day of creation as recorded in Genesis 1, 20 through 23. It would be a fascinating thing to take two copies of your Bible and open one Bible to Genesis 1 and one, by, uh, one of your Bibles to Psalm 104 and, and make those comparisons and to see the poetic echoes of the Genesis creation account here in this beautiful psalm of creation and providence, Psalm 104. So again, it would appear that this beautiful, divinely inspired literary masterpiece known to us today as Psalm 104 is a poetic reflection upon and echo of the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. Now, it's interesting that in this psalm, the author tends to use for the name of God, the name Yahweh, the Hebrew name Yahweh. That's represented in the word Lord, translated in your English translations in all capital letters. And what is the significance, again, of, of the name Yahweh, the name Lord? Well, Yahweh, of course, is the covenant name for God. It is the name for God that has in view His special covenant bond with His people, Israel. So why does the Holy Spirit inspire the psalmist to use the divine name Yahweh predominantly in this psalm instead of the more general name Elohim uh, to describe God? 
Well, it would seem that the reason is that the psalmist intends to present Yahweh, the covenant redeemer God of Israel, not as a mere tribal or national deity like the so-called gods of the pagan nations that surrounded Israel, but as the sovereign creator and providential Lord of heaven and earth, indeed the Lord over all of the nations of humanity. In other words, the electing, redeeming, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel is not just the God of Israel. Rather, He is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the providential King and Lord over all. In other words, our Redeemer is our creator and our creator is our Redeemer. What is the central theme or one of the central themes of this psalm? Well, again, I often quote from Dr. Willem van Gemmeren, and again, I think that he is helpful in his commentary. He says that the theme of Psalm 104 is God's greatness in ruling and sustaining his vast creation. The form of this psalm is a descriptive psalm of praise. Its theme and form are complementary to Psalm 103. Psalm 103 praises the Redeemer King, whereas this psalm magnifies the Creator King. And so what do we learn about Yahweh, God, our Lord, in this psalm? We learn many things, but first of all, in the opening verses, in the first section of this psalm, verses 1 through 9, consider that we see here Yahweh's greatness is displayed in the created order. Uh, Verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 104 highlight the fact that the Lord's greatness is displayed in the created order. Here, the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist to artfully and poetically describe God's greatness and splendor and majesty throughout this psalm by using various literary figures and types, analogy, figurative expressions, and phenomenological language. And we'll see some of that. Let me just, again, read this section of Psalm 104. The psalm begins as it closes with a call to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, the psalmist Uh, speaks to himself, summons himself to bless and praise Yahweh, his God. And then he says, O Lord, O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. And notice the language he uses to describe God's greatness. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. It's not that God uh, is a physical being who is naked and needs to be clothed, literally, But this imagery highlights the magnificence, the splendor, the majesty of our God. He is clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. Notice the imagery. The heavens are compared to a tent curtain, and Yahweh the Lord stretches out the heavens in His creative power. Verse 3, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers, messengers or angels. And that's how it's uh, understood by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1. He establishes the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains and so forth. Notice this this language, this uh, powerful uh, 
figurative language, poetic language that he uses. In verse 3, for example, Yahweh is pictured as laying the beams of his upper chambers, his, his heavenly dwelling place, as if, as if he has laid the beams for them. He has established them, in other words. He makes the clouds his chariot. Again, Yahweh is the, uh, is the God who fights for his people. He is the divine warrior who fights for his people. In verse 5, <clears throat> the earth is said to be established on foundations, indicating uh, the stability of the earth. In pagan thought, in ancient pagan thought in the days of, of ancient Israel, their pagan na- neighbors were, were often fearful because in their minds the creation was not stable, the earth was not firm. But the good news about the true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth, is that he has made a creation that is stable and orderly. You can rely upon it. You can rely upon uh, uh, the earth to, to remain stable. And then, of course, uh, in verse 19, if you skip down, we see this throughout the psalm, this uh, literary uh, poetic language. The sun, in verse 19, is said to know it's time for setting. That is... Uh, personification, as it says in verse 19, he made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. In other words, God has created an orderly universe where everything has its place. Everything is ordered according to his divine sovereignty. And again, in verse 13, God is pictured as dwelling in the upper chambers, or as uh, I think the ESV translates it as his lofty abode. All of this imagery, all of this language uh, serves to highlight the glory and greatness and majesty of God in his creation order. And what do we take from this? Well, believer, we are called, brothers and sisters, to stand in awe of the greatness of God as revealed in his creation. Creation testifies that God is majestic and magnificent. He is sovereign and supreme. Let us adore him. Let us stand in awe of our awesome God. One of the things that is also highlighted throughout this psalm, and we see it here in this opening section in the first nine verses as well, this psalm reveals that there is a divinely established order in creation. Psalm 104 reveals to us that our God is a God of order. Hear that, Presbyterians? We love to quote that verse, let everything be done decently and in good order. That's actually a good and godly thing, to desire that things be done in good order. For we serve a God who is a God of order. He is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order and structure, a God who makes distinctions, a God who sets boundaries, a God who bestows blessings. And whenever you try to redefine God's creation order or live outside of the boundaries that God has established, you're going to run into trouble. And I think we're seeing that in so many ways in our culture and society today as there is so much rebellion against God's created order. But God's created order is for our good. We must align ourselves if we want to live in peace and harmony, we must align our lives with the divine order that God has given to his creation. Let us seek by the grace of God to live within his divine order. But of course, as we learned from that passage that I read earlier in the service from Romans chapter 1, 
the wicked, those who are apart from, from God's grace, those who are unrepentant, uh, seek to suppress the truth of God that is revealed in creation. In fact, that, that is our natural tendency as, as fallen sinners. In, in Adam, our natural bent is to suppress or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. I picture, uh, you know, imagine you're in a swimming pool and you've got one of those beach balls. And as a kid, sometimes I like to try to push the ball under the water, but it never stayed under the water. If you're not actively suppressing it and holding it down, you let go, it pops right back up. Well, those who are unregenerate, those who are apart from Christ, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that is our natural tendency to hold down, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, to pretend that the God who created this magnificent universe is not, or that if he is, that he's not concerned about our uh, moral behavior. He's not concerned about how we live. But the God of the Bible is a God of order. He's also a God of righteousness and holiness and majesty, a God who calls us to live in line with his divine order. But in our, in our fallen nature, we don't do that. Again, to quote from uh, Romans 1, 18 through 20. Again, I know I read from this passage earlier in the service, but by way of reminder, Romans 1, 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is, not will be, but is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Did you know, do you notice the language there? God's invisible attributes, for example, his eternal power and divine nature, are clearly seen. How are they seen? They're invisible attributes. Well, they are understood through, through what has been made so that they are without excuse. A number of years ago, I remember um, re, uh, f- seeing a, a little cartoon. Um, I think it was, the, remember the BC cartoon? And there was a picture of, a, uh, one, of the, one of the cartoon characters denying the existence of God and all of a sudden just having a, just being overwhelmed by the sense of creation saying, there's got to be a God. You know, walking along boldly, there's no God. But then, looking up at the starry sky, there's got to be, there's got to be a God. We all know God has made his reality. He has made himself clearly known in the created order. And even the most ardent, dogmatic atheist, in their quieter moments, when they're left to their conscience, when they look up at the starry sky, they know in their heart of hearts that God is and that distresses them. That distresses them because they know that they are accountable to this God. That is true of each and every one of us. We are all accountable to the God, this majestic, magnificent, great, and awesome God that is revealed in Psalm 104. We know this God in our heart of hearts. We know we are accountable to him, for we were created in his image. So if that is you, dear listener... You know the truth, but you're suppressing it. Repent. 
of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, lest God's wrath abide upon you. Instead, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Admit your rebellion against your Creator and flee to Jesus Christ. Christ died for sinners like me and like you. And He rose from the dead so that all who trust in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. So we see in this psalm Yahweh's greatness displayed in the created order. But we also see in this psalm Yahweh's goodness being displayed in the created order. And that's my second point if you're following along in your sermon outline. In this psalm we see Yahweh's goodness is displayed in the created order. And His goodness is is described in the way that He, in His good and kind providence, provides for all of His creatures, mankind included. Look at verse 10. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. He does this, of course, ultimately for His own glory. You know, you ever wonder, well, why did God create such a vast universe that is, uh, as far as we know, uninhabited? We're the only inhabited planet in the entire vast universe. Well, God delights in His creation, but He also governs His creation in a way that benefits His creatures. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. No doubt that brings delight to God's, house, God's heart. rather. But, verse 11, they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. God is good. He provides for his creatures. And then, verse 14, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle. God even cares for the cattle. And he provides grass for them. And vegetation for the labor of man. So that he may bring forth food from the earth. And wine, which makes man's heart glad. God is a benevolent God. He desires that we delight in his good gifts. And then he talks about uh, food, which uh, oil that makes man's face glisten, food which sustains man's heart, verse 15. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon. God provides for uh, for the plant life of this planet as well where birds build their nests, and the stork, whose home is the fir tree, and so forth. Beloved, God's goodness is displayed in His works of providence. He provides for His creatures. He is a good God. He is a great God, a majestic God, a sovereign God, an omnipotent God, but He is also a good and benevolent God. Psalm 104, by the way, is a powerful refutation of all deistic notions of a distant, uninvolved creator. In other words, a God, a so-called God, who created all things, got things started, but then withdrew and basically lets things run on their own by so-called natural laws. Sometimes it's been compared to a, a sort of a watchmaker God, that, that God created the universe like a, a, a watch or a clockmaker would would make a clock and put all the pieces and parts in place, wind it up, and the clock runs on its own. Well, certainly God has created the natural laws uh, that, uh, that govern uh, this universe, 
But in the scriptures, when it rains, it's ultimately because God sends the rain. Yes, God uses natural laws to send rain and to send sunshine and so forth. He uses the natural laws of creation. But these so-called natural laws are simply God's ordinary way of operating. The biblical God revealed in Psalm 104 is not only the creator, but the sovereign Lord of providence who moment by moment sustains and governs the natural created order. As it says in the answer to Shorter Catechism number question 11, the question is, what are God's works of providence? I know some of you know the answer to this question. The Bible-based answer is God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. It is not that, it's not that God is uninvolved in the daily, uh, the daily uh, occurrences of the natural order. It's not that the sun rises on its own and sets on its own, that it, just, that it rains. It's not that it rains. God sends the rain. God causes the sun to rise and to set. He uses secondary causes to fulfill his sovereign purposes. But we, brothers and sisters, let us avoid a deistical conception of God that, that keeps him at a distance unless he's involved in redeeming us. God is active in redeeming us, but he is also a God who is active moment by moment, day by day, from the moment you get up in the morning to the moment you go to bed at night and even through the night. God is actively at work in your life, sustaining your life, granting you every breath that you take, granting you every beat of your heart, granting you everything that you have. God is involved. He's not distant. He's not distant. He is involved. So this psalm instructs us to reject all, uh, all deistical notions of the deity. But some would ask, well, okay, I understand that, Pastor, but, you know, I read this psalm and there's not much said here about the fact that God cursed the ground due to man's sin, as we're told in the Genesis account. And certainly, yes, God did curse the ground at Adam and Eve's fall into sin. God's curse upon the ground... Uh, uh, is, is uh, reality, and therefore the present creation also manifests the wrath of God. But at the same time, God in His divine providence, even in our fallen, sin-cursed situation, God continues to display His undeserved goodness and generosity in the created order, even in our fallen condition. Scripture testifies that even the ungodly experience a measure of His goodness and kindness and generosity. Some theologians call that common grace. Now, some Reformed theologians are uncomfortable with that terminology. They'll say things like, there's nothing common about grace, and I, I understand that, that sentiment. But whatever you call it, whatever label you use, it is clear from the Scriptures that God's goodness is not just restricted to His elect. His saving goodness is, but God manifests His goodness to all of his creatures, including even the wicked. Jesus himself said so. Consider, for example, uh, what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 to 45, as we consider uh, all of the scriptures, compare scripture with scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43, Jesus says, "'You have heard that it was said, "'You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy.'" But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For, listen up, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is, this is evidence of loving even our enemies, just as God shows love to his enemies, even the wicked, by sending the sunshine and the rain. Or we consider what, uh, what Paul uh, says in Acts chapter 14, verses 14 uh, through 17. Acts 14, verses 14 through 17, as Paul and Barnabas are addressing uh, the crowds at Lystra, these, these pagans who are trying to worship them. <laughs> and it says this, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, They tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Yes, there is an election of God. Not everyone experiences the saving grace of God, but God does show his kindness to all people, and that is one of the things that's going to make the unrepentant wicked even more guilty on Judgment Day, that they have refused to give thanks for God's goodness shown in their life, the kind of goodness of God that is spoken of in our psalm uh, for this evening. So our psalm for tonight highlights the goodness of Yahweh, Yahweh's goodness in providing for all of his creatures. And you know what? No matter who we are or what we've done or what our life circumstances may be, we all experience some measure of God's goodness each and every day. Let us be grateful for our Creator's goodness to us, and let us realize, too, that God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance, as Paul says in Romans 2, verse 4. So Yahweh's greatness and goodness are displayed in the order of creation. But we also learn in this psalm, and this is my final point in your sermon outline, that Yahweh's wisdom is displayed in His manifold works. Yahweh's wisdom is displayed in in his manifold works. In this closing section uh, of the psalm, or this um, section that, uh, that approaches uh, the close of the, the closing praise of, of Psalm 104, the psalmist writes, verse 24, O Lord, how many are your works? He's already recounted some of the Lord's works, and it's almost like he's saying, I could go on and on and on. How many are your works? And notice the second line. In wisdom, you've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Our God is a wise God. He is God the all-wise. And then he gives the example of the sea. Verse 25, there is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There the ships move along in Leviathan, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give it to them, they gather it up, and so forth. The created order contains an almost unlimited example of the creative wisdom of Almighty God. 
Our God's wisdom is displayed in the rocks and in the trees, in the dazzling diversity of marine life, and in the microscopic machinery of a single cell. His wisdom is displayed in the stars and galaxies as well as in the richness of Earth's animal kingdoms. So what is our takeaway from this beautiful psalm of creation and providence? Many takeaways, many applications we could glean from this passage, but let me leave you with some some closing thoughts. First of all, beloved, if God's created order so clearly manifests His divine uh, omniscient wisdom, then it is utter folly to deny God's existence or to rebel against His order of creation. Let us not deny the Lord, who is so good, so great, so wise. Instead, let us seek His wisdom as it is found in His holy word. Also, the creation we learn in this psalm, and this psalm serves to reinforce the truth, that the creation powerfully displays the great riches of God's infinite wisdom. But while creation displays God's wisdom, even more so is the wisdom of God displayed in the redemption that He has provided for us sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2, verse 3. We can learn much about God's glory and wisdom by studying His creation, but we can learn even more of His glory and wisdom by studying His plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and by seeking Christ as our wisdom. Is Christ your wisdom? In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And what is our proper response to the glory and majesty of God revealed in His created order? What is, the, what is our proper response uh, to the greatness and goodness and wisdom of God displayed in His created order and in His mighty works. Well, I think the psalmist uh, shows us the, the right path of response in the closing section, verses 31 to 35, where he says, Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in His works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to Him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. However, the psalmist ends this psalm in the awareness that that he, like we, continue to live in a fallen situation where the wicked abound. And so, he he, uh, he, in closing... In verse 35, offers this imprecatory prayer. He says, Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. For sinners and the wicked rebel against the Creator. They rebel against His divine order. And they cause much suffering and heartache uh, to those who trust in the Lord. And so he prays this eschatologically oriented prayer. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. They shall sooner or later be consumed from the earth. But then again, bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. And so let us join with this psalmist in blessing the Lord, for He is indeed very great. Let us praise Him for His greatness, for His goodness, 
and for his wisdom as displayed in his mighty works of creation, his providence, and especially in the gift of salvation that he has given to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord and Father in heaven, we thank you for your amazing majesty. We thank you for your greatness and glory and wisdom. And we thank you that your wisdom is displayed in your mighty works. But we thank you and praise you especially for the divine wisdom that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant us the grace, Heavenly Father, to walk in wisdom as we live out our lives as disciples of Jesus in this fallen, sin-cursed world. And Lord, we ask that you would give us grace to bear faithful testimony to you who are our awesome creator and covenant Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. As we close our time in worship this evening, I invite you to rise and let's sing together. Psalm 104b, we're going to sing stanzas 1 through 3, 12 and 16. Psalm 104b, stanzas, the first three stanzas as well as stanzas 12 and 16. We'll rise and sing together. 104b. <laughs> 